Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Part 6 The Washing of the Feet He would say nothing yet, but something he must do. What should it be? It must be something outpouring, something self-annihilating, something of glad service, for that is always the last and the best gift of love. He had shown already how patient he could be, how very long he could wait, indeed till the very end, till Judas himself cut the bond that bound them to each other. But there were also the rest, beloved, all of them. And at this last meeting he must give them yet another proof of the depth of his affection. He knew what he would do. The last conversation had suggested it. They were to be kings. He was their king. He would show them how a king, at least in his kingdom, should behave. They were to sit with him at table in his kingdom. He was sitting with them now. He would show them what most became the master of the feast. Suddenly he rose from where he reclined, so suddenly that it did not occur to the rest to move. In a corner of the room by the door were a basin and a pitcher of water, always provided for ablutions. He went over to them, he began to adjust his garments as if preparing for some manual work, taking off his outer coat, rolling back the sleeves of his tunic. What could he mean? They had seen him do manual work before, but this was a strange time for it. While they watched and wondered, he went on. He took the long towel hanging there. He tied it round himself like a girdle, leaving the ends hanging down in front. He picked up the basin and poured water into it. He came back to where they reclined. Before they could awake from their astonishment, he was kneeling at the feet of the first in the row and was washing them. And when the supper was done, the devil having now put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he came from God and goeth to God, he riseth from the supper, and layeth aside his garments, and having taken a towel, girded himself. After that he putteth water into a basin, and began to wash the feet of the disciples, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. The twelve looked on, amazed. They knew not what they should do. Long since their contention concerning their places in the kingdom had ceased, there had often been times when his mere deliberateness had imposed silence on them, when they had wondered what he did, and yet had not dared to ask questions. Witness the meeting with the woman at the well of Jacob, or the day when he had checked their wrath against the insolent Samaritans, or the defense he had made of the troublesome children with their mothers, or that further defense made not a week ago of the woman who had poured out her rich spikenard upon him. And now it was the same. What he did was so inconsistent with his dignity among them. Before he had miraculously fed them, he had done other wonders for them, the twelve alone, calming the sea for them, walking to them on the waters, even bidding one of them walked on the waters to him. He had lived with them continuously, had eaten and slept with them. 
but never before had he done anything like this. They were astonished beyond words to say what they would. In their hearts they were humbled and ashamed. If they had dared, they would have drawn in their feet and protested. But they did not dare. Quietly, deliberately, he went down the row, washed their dust-covered feet one by one, wiped them with the towel tied weight about his waist. In the tender way he did it, he made them feel, each one, even Judas, that they belonged to him, that they were indeed his own, his little children, that he was to them even as a mother, that if he was their master, it was only that he might serve them the more, that if it might be, gladly would he change places with them, let them be his masters while he was their slave. Only one in the group had the courage to protest. Simon Peter. Simon, who of late had begun to be called Peter, and who from the use of the name was beginning to realize his new status. Soon his turn came. What Jesus had done to the others, he prepared to do to him. He cometh, therefore, to Simon Peter. He, Jesus, to whom Simon's former venerated master, John the Baptist, had said, I ought to be baptized by thee, and comest thou to me? Jesus, the latchet of whose shoe that same John the Baptist had declared himself unworthy to loose. Jesus, who had made him, Simon, walk with those same feet upon the waters of the lake. Jesus, whom he himself had declared to be the very Son of the living God. Peter, in hasty moments, could forget many things, but not at such a moment as this. Once, when Jesus had done him a favor far less significant, he had fallen at his feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Since then, how often had the Master been compelled to rebuke him for his misdeeds? Once he had actually said to him, Go behind me, Satan. How then could he suffer this thing to be done to him? But perhaps Jesus had not noticed. Perhaps if he looked up and saw whose feet he was now washing, he too would acknowledge that one like Simon might well be passed over. He would remonstrate. He would call the attention of Jesus to what he was doing, and perhaps he would refrain. And Peter saith to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus heard, but did not desist. He still knelt at the feet of Simon. He, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, at the feet of Simon Peter, and washing them, even as once at Magdala a sinful woman had knelt down and washed his own. Unmoved by Simon's question, he took one of his feet in his hands and began to wash it. What I do now, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. This was his only answer, and he went on with his self-appointed task. It was a significant remark enough. It showed well that Jesus, who knew what was in man, knew well what was in Simon Peter, the good and the less good, and what yet would be, the fall soon to come, but also the rise soon to follow the essential worth in the end that would conquer all the rest. Such now, as always, was the patient, far-reaching vision of Jesus Christ.
which could look through the present and beyond it, through weakness and failure and sin and beyond them, and if only there was truth in the heart, was content to endure and pity and wait and forgive and serve. But Simon Peter had not yet traveled so far in the understanding of his master, not so far as John the Baptist, when Jesus had humbled himself before him. Then John had protested, I should be baptized by thee, and thou comest to me. Nevertheless, when bid to proceed, he had submitted without a word. Simon Peter could not yield so easily. He was not such as John. At the moment, he would liken himself only to the woman of Magdala. Whatever his fault, Simon never had delusions about his own sanctity. Impetuously, therefore, he urged his plea. He drew away his feet. In his old Galilean manner, he poured out his words of protest. Thou shalt never wash my feet. For the moment he forgot, as many times before he had forgotten, to whom he was speaking. He lost the Son of the living God in the meek and humble heart. But the Master knew well how to handle Peter. With all his faults, there was that between them on which Jesus could invariably rely. He had proved it long ago on that morning by the lake, when he had looked at him and had just said, Come, and Simon had at once left all and followed him. He had proved it again that night, just a year ago, when he had beckoned to him through the storm and again had said, Come, and Simon had leaped upon the waters to reach him. Now he had only to threaten separation, and Peter's resistance would vanish. Quietly, therefore, but with that firmness with which he had always treated Simon Peter, he said, If I wash thee not, thou shalt have no part with me. It was enough, and more than enough. He had touched the one spot in Simon's heart. No part with him? From one extreme, as was his wont, Peter rushed to the other. For Peter loved Jesus, loved him more than he himself knew, with a love that clung and would not be separated, would never have enough. If to be washed by Jesus was a condition of their union, then even to that he would submit. Nay, in that case, the more the better. Let Jesus have all, and more than all, if only in return Peter could have part with him. Then he cried, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and, and my head. Jesus had gained his point. But he had more yet to do. He had humbled himself before them, and that they had understood. But he would have them learn besides that what he had done was more than an act of humility. It was for a sign. Peter had already caught a glimmering of the truth. He had seen that somehow union with Jesus was bound up with washing at his hands. Now the master would complete the lesson. He would tell him how this external cleansing was a token of another within. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth but to wash his feet, but is clean holy. And yet, alas, even as he spoke, and even in this chosen company, he knew that his words must needs be qualified. Though he had washed the feet of all, yet was there one among them who would not be clean, would not, because of his own free choice he would not. Jesus was compelled to add, And you are clean, but not all. 
Again, John dwells upon this one exception, dwells upon it as he had done before, and as he will do again. It comes like a recurring lament, haunting his whole story. As it was the greatest sorrow in the heart of his beloved, so it was the greatest sorrow in his own. And it was not only the fact of the treachery, but the foreknowledge of the fact that oppressed him. Jesus had known it, and had borne the secret agony of it all the time. From the beginning, when first he had chosen the twelve, he had known it would come. And John, in perfect sympathy for the rest of his life, had never suffered it to escape his own memory. Among all the many shadows which had fallen across his master's path as he described it, this had been given the first and most prominent place. A year ago, after the famous discourse on the bread of life delivered in the synagogue at Capernaum, he had told how Jesus had ended by saying, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? As if somehow the very beauty of the Eucharist were inevitably connected with this apostasy. Then John had lingered on the misery of it all by adding, Now he meant Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for this same was about to betray him, whereas he was one of the twelve. As if the shame of it were in some sense the common burden of them all. Again, at the anointing by Mary at Bethania, that idol of perfect contrition, the same shadow had come over and had tended to mar the whole scene. Indeed, so much so, that what had been begun in the fullest glow of love ended in a long, drawn note of sadness. Listen how John lingers on it, looking at it and looking again, as at something which, if he had not himself witnessed, he could never have believed. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, he that was about to betray him, said, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and having the purse carried the things that were put therein. All this comes back to the mind of John as he now writes, reminding him that Jesus foreknew, and making him realize the more the added agony that this foreknowledge must have been. For he knew who he was that would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. The washing of the feet was over. Jesus put back the basin in its corner, resumed his outer garment, and took his place once more at the board. Already he had let them see, by his answer to Peter, that what he had done was symbolic. Now he would extend the symbolism. Then he had said that to be washed by his own hands, though it were only in part, was to be made wholly clean. Now he added that they should do the same to one another. Then his own act of humility was their salvation. Now the humility not only of the penitent, but also of him that forgave should have a like effect. Humility and charity, each blending into the other, Humility on both sides, charity on both sides. This is the meaning of the soul of Jesus expressed in the sacrament of penance. Then after he had washed their feet and taken his garments, being set down again, he said to them, Know you what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then I, being Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that as I have done to you, so you do also. 
Amen, amen, I say to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is the apostle greater than he that sent him. Already there was beginning to pour forth that torrent of thought and love which was to be conspicuous in Jesus during all the rest of that supper. To one who does not realize his situation, there seems to be but little but confusion of ideas and all that follows. In any case, it seems impossible to put what he says in order. What has he really meant by this washing of feet? What has he not meant? He has begun by making it a symbol of the cleansing sacrament. He has gone on to emphasize in it his own ideal of a master and lord. Then at once, on a third deduction, he has leaped on to the lesson of mutual charity and service. In all these, he takes such an act to be the truest imitation of himself. They were his servants, then let them wash one another's feet. They were his apostles, his witnesses, then let them wash one another's feet. They were to be preachers of his word. Let them preach the word by washing one another's feet. If they understood him aright, they would prove it by their imitation of him, above all else in this. If they would draw down his blessing upon them, they would win it by no other means more surely than by washing the feet of one another. Cleanness of heart, self-humiliation, charity of service. We ask ourselves which of these is most pleasing in the, to the heart of Jesus Christ, and we find that in practice the heart will admit of no distinction. To him, true cleanness of heart is humble. True humility is kind. True charity is clean. The three flow into one another, and the stamp of the three on the soul of a man is the true expression of himself. What follows is, in many ways, typical of our Lord Jesus Christ. On many occasions in his life we may notice how he is affected, not only by the words and actions, but also by the very feelings and emotions of those around him. How many times are we told that he read their thoughts, that he knew what was in their hearts, and each time with some corresponding emotion in himself? Strong as he was, and firm and true, yet was he sensitive as an aspen leaf to every breath of life about him. At Nazareth, he had wondered at their unbelief, and because of that unbelief had not been able, as the evangelists expressly tell us, to work many miracles among them. At the opposite extreme, on another day, in the narrow streets leading up from the beach at Capernaum, a poor woman had but touched the hem of his garment and had been cured. And Jesus had asked who had touched him because he had felt virtue go out of him. In the company of some, he was singularly at peace, as in Simon's house, or with the twelve on their return from their first mission, or with the family of Lazarus at Bithynia, or among the children on the high road through Perea. In the company of others, he was troubled, as when he was moved to anger in the street of Capernaum, or in the synagogue close by, or with the Pharisees in Judea, or when the young man came to him and then turned away. The sensitive human nature within him vibrated to every note, to the passions and emotions of men towards him, as well as to the birds in the air, the flowers of the field, the bright sun overhead, and the fields white for the harvest. And he allowed that vibration to affect his very soul, his very divine power. So was it, intensely, on this night. And now as John writes, after the years of pondering, his sensitive heart is able to detect it. Already, as we have seen, while Jesus washed the feet of the twelve, the consciousness of one sinister shadow in the room had checked him in his speech. Now again, when he would proceed with what he had to say, to his very own apart, 
as his farewell greeting, the same shadow crosses his path and he can go no further. He must turn aside. Something compels him. And the company, there is one of whom what he has just said will not be true. Still, they are his own. Even that one is his own. If one of them fails, and from the beginning he knew one would, in some sense he would take the blame upon himself. As a friend, however innocent, feels within himself the guilt of a friend disgraced, as a brother or sister feels the shame of a shamed sister or brother, as a mother, however holy, nay, the more in proportion to her sanctity, feels the guilt of a guilty son, so did the sensitive heart of Jesus Christ feel the guilt and shame of his chosen Judas. Therefore he must, as it were, give to himself some kind of explanation, some kind of defense. He fell back on prophecy. The psalmist had said that so it would be, and he had accepted the conditions. All my enemies whispered together against me. They devised evils to me. They determined against me an unjust word. For even the man of peace, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, hath greatly supplanted me. He would quote that prophecy, so that, that in the years to come, when the disciples look back on this mystery, they might then understand and believe. Hence, as it were, correcting himself, he continued, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me shall lift up his heel against me. At present, I tell you before it come to pass, that when it shall come to pass, you may believe that I am he. It is significant that later, on the first occasion on which Peter spoke as head of the universal church, he began with an allusion to this prophecy. It was after the ascension, before as yet the Holy Spirit had come down upon them. Judas was gone, and there was need that his place should be filled. As his master had done before him, so now, in justification for what he was about to do, Peter quoted the psalmist, Men, brethren, the scripture must be fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was the leader of them that apprehended Jesus, who was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Again, Jesus made an effort to proceed with what he had to say. He had begun before with, Amen, Amen, I say to you, his favorite formula of emphasis. He would steady himself by repeating it. Before, he had spoken of humility as the mark of one whom he had sent. Now, by contrast, he would dwell upon the honor due to him because of his commission. Before, he had said, Amen, amen, I say to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is the apostle greater than he that sent him. But now, Amen, amen, I say to you, he that receiveth whom I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Surely, a beautiful identification, made more beautiful because of the place in which it comes. It was a last appeal to Judas. Jesus had washed his feet. He had warned him in words that others would not understand, not once, but twice over. Now he tells him quite plainly how near they would be if only he would remain true. When Judas was gone, it would be an identification which would be yet more emphasized before the supper was over. He had been sent by the Father. They had been sent by Him. He was one with the Father. 
because they had been sent, they were to be one with him. This was the text which summed up beforehand most that he would have to say that night. <laughs>